0: I just I watched that episode of Friends recently where Ross is trying to flirt with the pizza girl, and he said uh, like, yeah. a lot of other gas smells.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, editor. Sorry. <laughs> the Jodcast coming soon to an alien megastructure near you. With Adam Barr, George Bendo Minnie Kenson, Benjamin Shaw. Hannah Stacey, Fiona Healy, James Bamber, James McKee, Charlie Walker and Tony Rushton. The Jodcast, October 2015 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Hannah and I'm with Monique and Fiona. Hello. Hi Hannah. In the show this time we interview Dr. Tony Rushton about X-ray binaries. Dr. George Bendo answers your astronomical questions. Ben interviews James McKee about the large European array for pulsars in this month's Jodbyte. But before all of that... Oh, yes.
0: I have an announcement to make about the Jodcast's upcoming 10th birthday celebration. Uh, So we've been talking about this and what we're going to do to mark the occasion. And we were thinking it would be lots of fun to do a live show, which would be recorded out at Jodrell Bank Observatory. So we were just wondering, listeners, uh, is that something you'd be interested in hearing? If you live in the UK, or even if you live outside of the UK, would you be interested in attending... So feel free, please, to send us any of your comments and suggestions about this.
1: I think we did a a live show. So was it five years ago or six Mm -hmm. years ago? Before our
0: time? Before our time. Um, Yeah, exactly. I think I remember
1: someone writing in and saying, are you going to do it again? Yeah, okay. So we've already got some interest. at least one person is interested. Yeah,
0: yeah. but um, we'd love to hear from you. Like, what kind of things would you like us... Um, to do for our live show, if we have one, any suggestions at all uh, are most welcome. Or if you think a live
2: show is a terrible idea and you have a better idea,
0: then tell us. Oh about. yeah, tell us yeah. that too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, moving on from our birthday celebrations and our live show, we have Ben, who's interviewing James McKee for our Jodbite.
3: This week's Jodbite is with James McKee. James has just entered his third year as a PhD student in Jodwell Bank's Pulsar Group, where he's involved in the search for gravitational waves. Hi, James. Hey, Ben. So, at the risk of being repetitive, we've, we've talked a lot about pulsars in the past on the Jodcast, but um, can you give us a sort of brief overview of what a pulsar is? What do they look like? How do we think they form?
4: Okay, so a uh, pulsar is the collapsed core of a star that's gone supernova. It's crushed down into a sphere um, a few kilometres across, but weighing approximately one and a half times the mass of the Sun. Angular momentum is also conserved as um, it gets crushed down, so it gets spun up to extremely high velocities. Such a large amount of matter rotating at such a high velocity is very difficult to slow down, so um, these things rotate with incredible regularity, and as such we can use these as clocks distributed around the galaxy.
3: So how do we actually see them?
4: We observe them at radio frequencies, just looking for... um, repeating time series in our uh, observations
3: so there's a particular part of this star that actually emits as it spins
4: yes we have uh, radio beams coming out of um, the two magnetic poles that if they're misaligned with the axis of rotation as they sweep around uh, it creates like a lighthouse effect so we can see this blinking on and off with uh, radio telescopes on the earth
3: so roughly how many of these objects do we know of so far
4: we know of about two and a half thousand so far, varying rotational velocities, uh, varying properties.
3: So, what would you say are the slowest and the fastest pulsars?
4: They, they range from a period of as long as about eight seconds to um, periods of almost one millisecond.
3: Wow, so extremely fast. So, pulsars are well renowned as as tools for for other areas of astrophysics. Could you tell us a little bit about what pulsars have been used for in the past?
4: Well, something that we like to use them for is to try and detect gravitational waves. So we think that um, because certain pulsars, uh, millisecond pulsars, spin extremely regularly, they can actually rival uh, atomic clocks in timing accuracy. So um, by analyzing the, um, the arrival times and um, comparing them to the expected arrival times that we should see pulses, we hope to see the evidence of space-time being stretched and compressed by gravitational waves between us and the pulsar.
3: So why do you think space-time has been stretched in the first place? Where does that idea come from?
4: Well, this idea comes from general relativity. It it was predicted nearly 100 years ago, and um, there's been efforts for about 30 years to try and discover evidence of this. Uh, There's been indirect evidence that um, such a phenomenon exists. Uh, We've seen uh, the orbital radius of orbiting pulsars uh, shrinking due to energy being radiated by gravitational waves. So we're very confident that they exist. It's just a very, very uh, precise measurement that we have to make. It's a very small quantity that we're trying to measure.
3: So... You're involved in a collaboration called the European Pulsar Timing Array. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's tempting to think of something called a Pulsar Timing array as, an array as an array of telescopes, but that's not what this is, is it?
4: No, and this is probably going to get a bit more confusing as the conversation goes on. But the, uh, the European Pulsar Timing Array refers to um, a collection of pulsars distributed across the sky that we observe. We try to find a correlated signal between these pulsars. That is... Um, a passing gravitational wave affecting all of them as we expect them to, rather than just using one or two sources.
3: So I guess if you were to just look at a single pulsar and see something that might look like a gravitational wave, you couldn't really be confident that 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 is a gravitational wave. It could just be something either intrinsic to the pulsar or intrinsic to the Earth. So you have to use effectively a set of these things. So when you say that this gravitational wave is passing through, it's not passing through all those pulsars at once. This is The Earth, right?
4: Yeah, this is the Earth term that's important. Um, You can set limits using individual pulsars, but um, to have any sort of confidence to claim a direct detection, you need to see this telltale signature uh, across all of the pulsars in your timing array.
3: So how many pulsars do you need to be able to detect gravitational waves?
4: That depends, I suppose. As, As many as possible would be the best. We use 42 in the European Pulsar Timing Array, and uh, our competitors in Nanograv in North America and the Parks Pulsar Timing Array in Australia use um, a similar number.
3: So pulsars are really, really good clocks, but they're not perfect clocks. There are still noise processes that might get in the way. So what sort of things might stop you from seeing a gravitational wave signature in pulsars?
4: Well, to begin with, we need to have quite a good idea of... Uh, fundamental quantities to the pulsar like its period, its spin-down rate, Uh, if it's in a binary uh, the binary parameters how far away it is from its companion, the orbital velocity, things like that its velocity through the the Milky Way. A big source of uncertainty comes from interstellar space itself. It's not empty, it's full of free electrons form a plasma that um, affect the arrival times of the pulse particularly at low frequencies. And this is very difficult to get a handle on. We need to measure it, multiple frequencies, compare the data, and over quite a long time period.
3: When we're doing electromagnetic astronomy, we can look at different bands, we can look at different wave bands, we can look at radio waves, we can look at x-rays, we can look at optical astronomy. Is there a similar distribution or a similar spectrum of wave bands that are expected to come from gravitational wave astronomy, and if so, what is it you're sensitive to with pulsar timing?
4: Well, we expect there to be a spectrum of gravitational waves that that exists in the universe. Um, We have high-frequency waves that um, we expect to be generated by uh, anisotropies on neutron star surfaces. We have, like, a a sort of middle range that we expect to see from orbiting massive objects, like... um, binary neutron stars, binary white dwarfs. And then we have the uh the very low frequency regime that we expect to be dominated by um a gravitational wave background, like a superposition of all uh, of all the different sources. Um, some of these sources that we should be sensitive to are um orbiting supermassive black holes, cosmic strings, um, things from the very early universe. This is what pulsar timing arrays are sensitive to, these very low frequencies. The higher frequencies are being probed by LIGO at the moment and the um, proposed LISA mission.
3: So these interferometers, I guess, that are either on the on the ground or in space that are looking at two different laser beams, and if you see differences in the arrival times of those laser beams, then you potentially detected a gravitational wave.
4: Yeah, that's true, and in fact, um, pulsar timing is also interferometry. Just um, we use interferometers with arm lengths of the scale of the galaxy rather than Scale of kilometres.
3: I, th- I think this is actually really cool. That I mean, we we actually know so little about pulsars and so little about neutron stars. We don't really know how they emit. We don't really know what they're made of to any great degree of accuracy. Their formation is still a bit of a mystery. And yet, we can do all this really quite amazing science with it. You say that we're going to detect. Gravitational waves from supermassive black holes, it can constrain things like the masses of those black holes, it can tell us about galaxy formation and how galaxies interact. So these are really cool systems that we know nothing about that are telling us so much about everything else.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And um, when we can start to detect gravitational waves and um, we get some expertise with it, we can even use these as a way of looking at the universe. So at the moment we can only use uh, electromagnetic radiation little bit of neutrino astronomy which is in its infancy but um gravitational wave astronomy has not been possible yet so it still isn't possible and when it is possible who knows what's that's going to uh, what that's going to bring up
3: is it a question of when
4: i think it is uh, we've got extremely good evidence that gravitational waves exist it's just been really difficult to detect them up to this point we we certainly hope that with Pulsar Timing Arrays we should be able to make it a detection within the next 10 years. Um, wow. With LIGO, well, that might even be a little bit sooner. Do you think there's a
3: bit of a race on between the different frequency bands that people are looking for? You, LIGO looking for high frequencies, you looking for low frequencies? Or?
4: I think people in the Pulsar Timing community like to think there's a race on, but I don't think any of us really expect to win it.
3: Right. And nobody's going to begrudge anybody that sees it first right it's it's all everybody wants the science it doesn't really matter at the end of the day who gets it.
4: To an extent but it would still be nicer to be the part of the team that makes the first detection.
3: Well let's hope that's part of the collaboration that you're working on which I'd like to move on to so as part of the European Pulsar Timing Array there is this other thing called the Large European Array for Pulsars so can you tell us a little bit about what that is?
4: Okay, so the Large European Array for Pulsars is, um, isn't an array of pulsars this time. It's an array of telescopes. Telescopes are expensive things to build, and we don't want to sit around waiting for the SKA to finally come online. So we found a way to tie together the five biggest telescopes in Europe. That's uh, the Lovell at Jodrell Bank, uh, Westerbork Synthesis Radio Telescope in the Netherlands, Ethelsberg in Germany... Uh, the Nonsei radio telescope in France, and the Sardinia radio telescope uh, in Sardinia. So we tie these together and observe a set of millisecond pulsars once a month. This allows us to form a virtual telescope um, with a 195-metre equivalent, which actually makes it the uh, the second-largest telescope in the world for now until FAST comes online next year.
3: So are all five telescopes looking at the same pulsar for the same amount of time, or are you all looking at different pulsars and then you correlate your data afterwards?
4: Yeah, we observe the same pulsars simultaneously uh, throughout the observing sessions. We have to be very careful to make sure that we are observing for um, a very particular amount of time so we can add the data together properly without any gaps or anything like that.
3: Is that quite a challenge to add data together from different different telescopes?
4: It certainly has been, and um it takes us quite a lot of time each month, but uh, we've started to get quite good at it and um, what used to take uh, months a few years ago we can now do in a few days.
3: So what will it mean when we discover gravitational waves, and I do want to say when because it's going to happen eventually. What will it actually mean for astronomy? what will we be able to do? what will we what will we be able to see? that we can't see with just electromagnetic radiation.
4: Well, the handy thing about gravitational waves is that they, or we think, they aren't shielded by anything. Uh, Electromagnetic waves are affected by the interstellar medium as they travel through it. Um, They can be affected by the atmosphere or they can just be affected by um, solid objects getting in the way. As far as we know, gravitational waves shouldn't be affected like this. So you can probe things like the... um, in a part of the Milky Way that's um, almost impossible to image because of dust and uh, radio wavelengths, uh, the large amount of free electrons. You can see things that don't shine, like black holes, and we hope we should be able to see um, closer to the Big Bang. Because for several hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, um, space was opaque, so there's no way you can use electromagnetic radiation to, to probe that region of the universe.
3: So this could get you a, a window into what was happening before the cosmic microwave background formed.
4: Absolutely. Um, it should be interesting to astronomy in all fields, not just pulsars, not just um, theory, but cosmology, galaxy formation, dark matter, dark energy, anything. In breakthroughs in astronomy, they usually ends up being uh, something completely unexpected that comes to the surface, and um, that can redefine astronomy for years to come. With the advent of the radio telescope... Um, there were a lot of accidental Nobel Prizes, um, the discovery of pulsars by accident, the cosmic microwave background being detected. With um even things in its infancy like um neutrino astronomy. We had the solar neutrino problem that led to the um the theory of neutrino oscillations. And with um measuring the spectra from distant stars we we inadvertently observe that the expansion of the universe is accelerating.
3: So who knows what's gonna come out of this? Exactly. So you're not just involved in the large European array for pulsars. You've done a little bit of work on the probably the most famous pulsar, the crab pulsar. Um, you're currently writing a paper on that, I believe. So hopefully you'll come back and talk to us when that paper's out. And yeah, that'd
4: be great. I'd like that.
3: Tell us all about the crab. In the meantime, the best of luck with your search for gravitational waves. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for joining us.
4: Thanks very much, Ben.
2: Thanks for that, Ben. In other news this month... We have a slightly famous person in our department. In fact, they made it to BBC News. Our very own Simon Rickyard was crowned the World Porridge-Making Champion at the annual Golden Spurtle Awards. Um, for those of you who don't know what a spurtle is... <laughs> yeah, we've been
1: looking it up. Yeah, we, we didn't
2: know. know I don't,
1: to be fair. <laughs>
2: um, it turns out it's a special...
0: S- <laughs> special porridge stick. It looks stick. like a wooden spoon, but with yeah. no spoon
1: bit. <laughs> that, that's a good description. Yeah. Like, a, like a magic wand, almost, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. can like porridge,
2: <laughs> porridge wand. Porridge wand is a good description. Yeah.
1: So it's it's made
2: for especially for making porridge. And Simon Rookyard won the Golden Spurtle in a competition um, just uh, last month. Um, is it the, the
0: National Porridge-Making Championships? What
2: uh, the World Porridge-Making Championships. Wow. I'm yeah. selling them
0: short. <laughs> um, and in
2: fact, he had to make porridge out of just oats, water, and salt. And that's it. It's beyond me that that's tasty. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, like, I will say um, porridge, I think, is nicer with water than with milk. But... Uh, as a disclaimer when I make porridge I add in like loads of Nutella and bananas Ooh, and cinnamon. Nutella oh that's so good. Yeah. But apparently
1: um, porridge is harder to make than you would think. Is that porridge right? is really
0: hard to make. It's really hard to get it right. I do it every morning I come in here and I make my porridge in the microwave at JPCA. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm refining my microwave porridge technique but it's hard. it's certainly harder in a microwave than it is in a hob and Simon tells me um that even where hobs are concerned you, you you're better if you have uh, a gas hob rather than an electric um and in fact for the wow. world porridge making championships it's only a gas hob that you're allowed to use uh which I can understand because in a gas hob you have a lot more control over the temperature, the temperature. you can turn mm-hmm. it down and you can you can make these subtle little variations because you don't want a high heat for porridge you just no. The sort of breakfast where you can't just leave it blipping on the stove and forget about it, or else it'll all kind of um, end up mm. in the ceiling. But <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's even more impressive because he was also writing up his PhD and handing in at about the same time. Yeah, that's a, a huge quite achievement. A feat, yeah. yeah,
0: well done, Simon. Yeah, and yeah, hope, well he's done.
2: agreed to do an interview with us, so hopefully we'll have him on the show shortly. So now for our interview, and Ben's going to interview Dr. Tony Rushton about X-ray binaries.
3: In the Jodcast studio with me today is Tony Rushton, who is a research fellow at Oxford Astrophysics. Hi, Tony. Hi. Thank you. Hi. So uh, you're not new to Jodwell Bank, are you? Um, why don't you give us a bit of an uh, overview of your career history so far?
5: Um, so No, not at all. Um, I originally did my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees here at the, at the University of Manchester. And I was originally based out at the, the Jodwell Bank Observatory uh, before moving on to uh, other institutes. Once I'd completed uh, my degrees here at the University of Manchester, I then had the opportunity to go work for the European Southern Observatory in, in Sweden um, for a few years uh, before uh, returning back to the UK at the University of Southampton, and now I work at the University of Oxford. Right,
3: excellent. Um, so your research is in X-ray binaries. Mm. What's an
5: X-ray binary? Well, fundamentally, it's a binary star system that produces an awful lot of X-rays. Uh, in fact, they're, they're so X-ray bright that they, they tend to dominate the, the X-ray sky. If your, your eyes could see in the X-rays, and you look up in the sky, rather than just seeing your typical isolated stars, you would mostly see these flaring binary uh, systems. The reason why they produce extremely bright X-rays is because there's typically a what we call a very compact object in the binary system. So something like uh, a neutron star or a black hole that has an extremely strong gravitational uh, well. Next to the the compact object there is typically another main sequence star which is uh, accreting onto the compact object and that is causing gas to be accelerated to extremely high temperatures which is emitting all the the X-ray emission.
3: So how do you know what each of those objects is in the X-ray binary? Is there a range of different types of companion star that are donating the material onto the compact object, or is it just one type of star? Or
5: it is a little complicated. There's a whole variety of uh, different uh, processes uh, that go on. Uh, we have, it's not necessarily just a normal main sequence star like our sun, which is accreting onto the black hole or neutron star. Sometimes we have a massive, high mass star, which is ten times, at least ten times bigger than a a standard uh, sun-like star um, and then you have a whole range of different parameters in, in the system depending on what's going on what's the, the transfer rate of the gas onto onto the black hole and mm-hmm. various other conditions like the, the magnetic field and there's a whole zoo of different physical processes that go on around black holes and and although we are just really scratching the surface of what goes on with these these objects we do know there's a whole range of different processes that we observe mm-hmm. in, we look at these objects.
3: And they give rise to different observational phenomena that you can then
5: disentangle. Absolutely. Again, it's, it's a little complex because we, we have to look at these objects across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, and we see complex variability happening all the way from gamma rays, x-rays, optical, infrared, down to the, the radio emission. And all the different uh, wave bands vary uh, with time, Uh, And with different class of objects. So how
3: do you know the compact object is either a neutron star or a black hole, or is that still
5: something of a grey area? That's a good question. A lot of people ask me, how do you know it's a black hole is there if it's black and you you can't see it? Of course, what we actually do is we we infer the presence of a, uh, a very... Compact objects like a black hole, based on the uh, the way it in, the the compact object interacts with the surrounding uh, environment. So a black hole will cause a slightly different accretion disk to form around it than what a neutron star would form. At least that's what theory uh, tells us. And the the classical signature from the X-ray band is. So we look at the, the different X-ray colours of X-ray binaries, and we trace out how the luminosity and the, the colour, or, or spectra, if, if you like, of mm. the, the black hole behaves, and we can clearly see distinct class, classes of objects which we attribute to being a different mass of compact objects. So right. A neutron star or a black hole.
3: So is that a very clear cut-off between the two?
5: Yes, they 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 clearly trace quite different um, uh, different shapes mm-hmm. uh, in the. Um in the, in the spectra and how the luminosity evolves. And then what we do is we, we look at those observational parameters and we see these different classes of objects and then we take other independent information, like the, the optical information, which will tell us the, about the, the binary orbits of the system, so give us what the, the period is of the system which will also help us infer the mass of the binary system. And we can clearly see a correlation where the, uh, the objects which have uh, appear to have a, a high mass uh, compact object in the, in the optical clearly behave in a certain way in the the X-ray colour.
3: When you have one of these objects in your field of view is the majority of the emission coming from the accretion disk and the compact object or is it from the companion?
5: That's a good question. There's actually a third possibility. Uh, The majority of the emission could be coming from from a jet that's being accelerated away from, from these objects. So I should explain first that when we look at these objects which we believe are gas coming from a star accreting uh, but falling towards a black hole, or a neutron star, forming an accretion disk, which emits a lot of uh, electromagnetic radiation. Because of the very, very strong magnetic fields that are entrailed in the accretion disk, a fraction of that gas is accelerated away from the black hole, along the poles of the, uh, of the accretion disk, or p- perpendicular to, to the accretion disk, into highly collimated jets of, of plasma. The particles accelerated up to very close to the speed of light and these produce very intense uh, radio waves from a mechanism called synchrotron radiation and it's not entirely clear to us if all of the the emission that we see in the the x-rays is coming directly from the accretion disk or is actually coming from uh, partly coming from from the jets so to answer your question it depends which part of the spectrum that we're looking at um, what's dominating most of the emission roughly we think that all the in the radio band all the emission comes from the from the jets possibly up to the far infrared and then certainly if we have a high mass star for example which are very luminous we believe that the the optical emission comes from stellar companion and then as we go into the x rays we see a thermal component which we think comes from the inner parts of the accretion disk followed by a second x ray spectral component which we believe either comes from electrons that are scattered off the accretion disk or comes directly from from the jet emission. And these questions are still quite open as to what is exactly the the physical accelerating processes around these objects.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask what could possibly cause a magnetic field to appear in an accretion disk. I've always pictured accretion disks as quite chaotic regions of the sky, whereas something is obviously making these jets incredibly narrow and collimated.
5: Well, the exact composition of the jets uh, isn't quite clear. Um, It must be charged particles like... Electrons, which are probably the majority of the uh, the composition uh, of the jets. Uh, And in in terms of the order of the accretion disk, well, although there's a lot of viscous forces that go on uh, inside the disk, generally most of the particles are rotating round in one plane of of accretion. So they're they're either going with the the uh, rotation of the compact object or in a retrograde motion of of the object. And this, uh, this ensemble of charged particles even create a strong magnetic field, will produce intense radio emission. So are
3: there other sources in the sky that produce jets, and do they all look the same? Jets
5: are um, seen on a huge range of different scales and sizes in the universe. So we see jets of plasma just coming from our own sun, for example. You see the the charged particles being ripped off. They're on a relatively small uh, scale. Uh, you see jets coming out from what we call young stellar objects uh, in our local local galaxy. Um, so when stars are formed, matt gas accretes in towards into a accretion disk and forms a new star, you see uh, acceleration of jets. <laughs> We've been talking about X-ray binaries. that Obviously, they produce uh, strong radio jets. But we also see jets happening on much larger scales in the form of what we call active galactic nuclei. So we believe now that most galaxies have at their their galactic centre a supermassive black hole. So a a black hole that has a a mass of well over a million to maybe tens of billions of solar masses, possibly a, a billion stars, all compacted into one location. And these objects produce huge jets, jets that are sometimes larger than the host galaxy and certainly much larger than the Milky Way galaxy. So we can have jets that are relatively small from black holes in x-ray binaries that have the size of say 100 astronomical units up to jets that have something more like 100 kiloparsecs so the entire size of a galaxy and it's amazing that you can see such the same physical processes um, of accelerating particles towards a black hole and accelerating away from them but over such a range of, of sizes something we don't really see elsewhere in the universe. Yeah, I've seen some really beautiful pictures
3: of Cygnus A. With just It's just a diffuse blob if you look in the optical, but switch to the radio and you've just got a tiny thing in the centre with these huge lobes coming out. Yeah. And it's a, I had that as my desktop background for quite some time, actually.
5: And it's beautiful because you can really see where the, the, the jets are accelerated um, from the centre of the, the galaxy all the way through the galaxy, and then they just hit what looks like a brick wall, mm. which is the, the surrounding interstellar medium, uh, sorry, interstellar. Uh, cluster clusteral medium hmm. for the galaxy, and you just see as soon as the the particles carry on and as soon as it leaves the galaxy, the density of the surrounding medium is, 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 is a slightly bit higher hmm. and that causes the particles just to, to to stop and and crash and you you see the hot spots of these interaction regions bright up quite nicely in the x ray band as well
3: hmm. yeah, these are really lovely images actually so x ray binaries do they tend to be quite stable systems are these jets quite stable or do they vary is they flickering is there any transient activity that goes on with these systems
5: unfortunately not or maybe fortunately uh, they're, <laughs> they're, they're quite interesting because they uh, these objects are really transient their changes in the, the, uh, their behavior is incredibly rapid over the timescale of sometimes over just a few hours they change mm-hmm. up to a few days so what happens is there's instabilities in the, the accretion disk as the gas falls towards the black hole. These instabilities cause complete changes across the whole EM spectrum. They will go from what we call a slightly quiescent level. So they're just ticking along quite happily with maybe just being fed a, a, little, a little bit of gas. and Suddenly a, a deluge of particles heads towards it. And you see, you see the yeah. x-rays go crazy. They, some objects flare. Many orders of magnitude, hundred times, thousand times brighter than what their sort of background normal level is like, and that can happen over the space of just a few days. Uh, and then you see everything else happens. The radio can come up, uh, come up at a slightly later uh, time, and you can see sometimes you see optical flares as well.
3: So, how easy is it to catch the the rise of these flares? I mean, if they're quite transient and unpredictable, how can you make sure you've got a telescope in the right place at the right time?
5: Well, that's does the trick. Um, typically, these things want to go off on a late on a Friday evening when you're <laughs> settling down for your dinner. And we aim to try to put systems into place that get robots and computers to try to catch these sources for us. So we do this quite successfully with... Our X-ray telescopes in space. We have um, uh, an X-ray telescope that was put up by by NASA called the the Swift uh, X-ray telescope, and that has an instrument on board which monitors most of the the sky for new gamma ray flares. And they have a piece of software which just says when a new gamma ray is detected in the sky the telescope will automatically reposition itself and that the spacecraft will slew to the new part of the sky and and look at it with with its x-ray telescope. That's a pretty neat little piece of software that we've got these robots in space now that just automatically decide, right, I'm going to go and look at that part of the sky because something cool happened over there in the the x-rays and gamma rays. We now try to extend that uh, to looking at, uh, to include our ground based telescopes. So part of our, our project that we're involved with in the 4Pi Sky project at the University of Oxford, we have a, a system in place now that, uh, takes messages from the, from the Swift uh, computer, which gets relayed down to a ground center in NASA and then relayed over the internet. Uh, and we send uh, that relay, when we detect an interesting source of the sky, we send it to a telescope that we're, we use in Cambridge, at the University of Cambridge, called the Amy Telescope. And that is a radio telescope that will automatically reposition itself and try to look at that part of the sky that's just flared in the x-rays as quickly as possible. Right. And we, we more or less do that with no human invention at all. So we wow. really have space robots that are taking over our telescopes.
3: <laughs> you must be really popular with people that've already got observing time on these telescopes and suddenly they start slewing to another object.
5: <laughs> well, <laughs> well we we hope that um their their observations can be redone because most of the sky, uh, when you think about doing astronomy, you think of um slow moving nebula that don't, mm. you know, and we 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 talk about all these things will change after a million X years from now. Yeah while our objects flare up on the time scale or change, if you like, uh, on the time scale of, say, a few hours, maybe even minutes. So we do, of course, have to work out how to prioritise which objects to, uh, to look at. But typically, we have to override something. We hope that that observation will be able to be rescheduled in the future yeah. <laughs> so we will all be able to get what we want. Th- there aren't currently that many... Um, big radio events happening in the sky hmm. the really big events really only happen once every few years this is what happened uh, earlier in the year we had an object that we've known about um, for the last 25 years or so and it sat dormant um, just being a happy black hole that's taking a little bit of gas from its companion star and it's producing a little bit of x-ray, a little bit of radio. And it didn't do anything for, for 25 years. And then a few months ago, all of a sudden, it flared and it became the brightest x-ray source in the sky by somewhat, by, some, by a large amount. Uh, there are other sources that, that produce x-rays. There's, um, there's something, an object we call the, the crab pulsar. And the crab pulsar is one of the uh, the brightest com- persistent uh, x-ray sources and so much so that we even use it as a sort of a a unit we talk about an object is uh, in millicrabs so a (laughs) a fraction of this really bright object uh, called a crab with this black hole we've been monitoring uh, called V404 SIG it went up to 40 crab so 40 times the the usually brightest source uh, on the sky so we, we couldn't Not see it. Yeah. Telescopes. And we had um, our Amy telescope um, in Cambridge um, automatically picked up the. The detection in in the gamma rays and and got onto the object and and we saw it uh, it increase and become one of the brightest radio sources in the sky a few days later. And we spent a few weeks just frantically running around getting as many telescopes. (laughs) I think at one point just about every telescope on the the planet was looking at this object. You can see it with uh, amateur optical telescopes with just a 12-inch telescope. It was that bright. And it's 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 really fascinating when it happens. It's, it's all panic stations because <laughs> you've got to try to talk and communicate. And uh, fortunately, um, with better communication tools with, like Facebook and Twitter and mm. email, and uh, we have been able to coordinate our activities across the globe a lot better than we did maybe 25 years ago. And now we have this really rich set of data which we're currently in the process of analysing.
3: That's fantastic. So the 4 Pi Sky project, does it look for emission, gamma-ray emission just... From X-ray binaries, or is it just checking out anything in the universe that emits gamma rays?
5: Uh, it doesn't look uh, for uh, gamma rays. It follows up alerts that tell us that there are things like gamma rays that, that goes off. Um, currently, we we um, <clears throat> we have a we get the system to follow up all the gamma ray uh, flares that the NASA Swift telescope uh, uh, detects. But we extend the program to try to look for any radio transients. What we're really interested in is finding anything that, that's, that's transient and produces uh, radio emission. So we also will follow up optical observations, like supernova. Um, there are flare stars. Um, there are um, also AGN and what we call tidal disruption events, where a, we believe um, a star is tidally disrupted as it heads towards, or it gets too it gets close to a supermassive black hole and causes a, a transient event um and the, the real difficulty is that we don't really monitor the the, the sky in the the radio band it's it's uh, technically um quite possible at the moment to monitor the entire sky for you know, for gamma rays because hmm. uh, of the, the w- uh, how the technology works but for radio telescopes it, it's quite limiting and we can only really look at a small part a patch of the sky yeah so 4 Sky's job is to try to take as many different sources of new transit information and automatically slew and get onto that, that source.
3: Well, that's great. Well, thanks very much. Um, that's been really interesting, and uh, hopefully we'll hear from you again sometime in the future. Yeah, thank you. It's been
5: really good coming here again. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks
1: for that, Ben. And now on to our odds and ends. So um, I've got another odd and end about Pluto this week. And you may have seen in the news that Pluto is got a blue atmosphere, And it's also a little bit red, you can see in the pictures. So Pluto's blue sky is caused by the same effects as we see on Earth, with Earth's blue skies, and that is the differential scattering of light. So the different wavelengths of light are scattered by different amounts, and that's why we end up seeing a blue sky. And Pluto has a very sort of small atmosphere, which is a little bit of nitrogen and a little bit of simple organic molecules. And these also cause this sort of red colour on the surface as well, because these um, organic molecules sort of clump together and create these things called tholins, which Mm -hmm. then fall to the surface and have this reddish-brown colour. And make this um, reddish-brown colour on the surface. So, like rain? Um, I don't know if it's like rain. I think it's a very... Like like, clumpy rain. Clumpy rain. Well, I think it's a very um, uh, low-pressure environment, so Uh, I don't know if it would look like rain, but it's probably very slow and just sort of appears on the surface over long periods of time.
0: Like, does anyone else actually now kind of want to go to Pluto yeah I'm just hearing all this really cool stuff about Pluto and what it looks like and now apparently it's blue skies there as well it's just blue skies better than Manchester. and red flag. yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I really want to go there I want hmm. to visit I think it should be you know the next kind of um tourist destination <laughs> you know but, I, mean, I bet you like What's his face? Richard Branson over at Virgin will be offering spaceships to Pluto next. Door, <laughs> it's Only like ten a
1: 10 year journey. journey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can't stop when you're there. <laughs> yeah. mm. Another fact about Tholins I just learned is that they were named by Carl Sagan and one of his colleagues, oh, which I didn't know. Which is quite that's interesting. cool. That's mm. interesting.
2: Mm. So, also this month, new images were released from the archive of the Chandra X ray telescope. Chandra has been instrumental in learning about the physics of galaxy clusters, as well as giving us information about how gas is accreted onto black holes. Um, I only just found out recently, actually, that the telescope is named after Chandrasekhar, who's famous for his work on cell structure and dynamics, as well as black holes. And he gave us the Chandrasekhar limit, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's where I knew his name yeah, from initially. Yeah. Um, so... What's interesting about these images is that they've not just got Chandra data in them, but they've also combined them with um, data from the Hubble Space Telescope, and the Optical, and Spitzer, and also um, some radio telescopes. And there's six images, um, and I definitely re- recommend looking at them. I'll put the link in the show notes. But my personal favourite is of the galaxy cluster MS0735.6. And there's some more numbers. <laughs> 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 um, admittedly, I'm slightly biased because my research is galaxy clusters, which are these groups of hundreds of thousands of galaxies all held together. But this one's really cool because you've got the X-ray shows you the intergalactic medium, so all the hot gas between all the galaxies. But in the radio, you can also see um, some jets coming out of the central galaxy. Mm. So this, you get this kind of feedback from the active galactic nucleus and it's pushing out lots of um, stuff across the galaxy. And you can see that in the radio and it's really That's incredible. cool. Fiona and I
1: like jets,
0: don't we? Jets are brilliant. Yeah, we like I jets. I love jets. <laughs> so go look at those. Okay, Uh and my odd end this time around is about astronomers not really knowing what's going on, um, <laughs> which happens a lot, all no, the time. Well, it's research, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so exactly. No, um, no one knows what they're doing. So really. uh, they've <laughs> been observing this star called AU microscopii uh, since like the 1980s. They've been looking at this one for a long, long time now. And they've noticed, um, they noticed some time ago that um the star has a disk of debris around it, uh, just kind of stuff clutter, junk, whatever, you know. And that's not uncommon for stars to have that. Um, for example, um, it's often like regions that are forming planets, things like that. But this one is unusual because just recently and the, a group of researchers have published a paper about this in Nature, which we'll link to in our show notes. They, they're they looking at the debris and they've noticed that it's got these kind of bizarre clumps, just all on one side. So they've, there's a disk of debris and they're, they're looking at the star kind of... Um, they, they're kind of looking at a cross-section of the disc uh, with a star in the centre, if you know what I mean. Edge um, on. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Hannah. Edge <laughs> on. <laughs> and they've noticed that on one side of the disc there are these mysterious clumps, about five or six of them, and they don't know uh, what's causing them at all. So I have I have um, their paper here in front of me and um, they've labelled the clumps and you can see like it, it just looks like a kind of a... We're used to looking at pictures like this they kind of look like clouds, basically, but you can see that this one particular cloud I sort of split up into five smaller ones. And they've proposed a few different explanations as to why this might be, a few different things that could possibly cause this. So they said that, you know, lots of debris disks have warps and asymmetries in their brightness and stuff, which could be caused by planets that are forming or whatever. But they said that... Those features usually appear static over time, whereas these clumps—what makes them extra, you know, what makes them especially remarkable—is uh, that they're moving. They're moving away from the star quite fast. Some of them almost at escape velocity. So they've ruled out that it could be, um, you know, planets forming these these um, asymmetries. They said that there are also mechanisms um, which can cause kind of dust to move around um, and be accelerated up to high speeds in debris clouds around stars, but they rely on there being gas present. So in other words, that if there's the presence of gas uh, in these debris clouds, that it can cause things to accelerate, but uh, that's not happening here. There is no gas present in this cloud of debris, so they ruled that out. Basically, they just propose a bunch of different explanations, but they're kind of saying, look, none of these fit, and they don't know what's going on. Um, So, you know, you may hear more about this from us if we ever do find out what's happening. But I guess I thought it's frequent, I guess, that astronomers are confronted with a problem where we're just like, well, we don't know what's causing this. And, mm-hmm. you know, down the line, there probably will be an answer. And like, you know... It'll probably be a pretty boring answer, I have to tell you. It probably won't be aliens. It probably yeah. won't be aliens. because like all the newspapers are, are like, oh, <gasps> astronomers don't know, so it's aliens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel it's, like that hits the news like every two weeks. Yeah, yeah it it does, there's yeah. always something. It's probably aliens. It's probably not aliens, lads. Just, to, just cool to get it that was, in there. <laughs> yeah, it would be cool. And you know, aliens, you know, probably exist, but I don't. I don't think we're looking at them here. I think it's just some clumps. <laughs>
1: Just <laughs> some dust. And some interactions yeah, yeah, happening that exactly, we yeah, don't understand
0: yeah. yet. Uh, porridge gets lumpy sometimes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it all kind of clumps together if you don't stir it often enough. Yeah. You leave on to the stove for too long. Exactly. Yeah. L- last of things in space are a bit like porridge, actually. <laughs> it's an analogy that's often used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, moving on now to some questions that we do know the answers to. Uh, we have George answering your questions in Ask an Astronomer.
6: So, our first question comes from Simon Everett, who writes, Thank you, firstly, for having this facility available, to allow questions to be posed and hopefully answered. On watching stargazing Live recently, and also from listening to a broadcast on Radio 4, I was very surprised to learn of the differences between the temperatures of the surface of the sun and its corona. As a layman, this information would indicate that the corona is the driving force providing energy to the surface of the Earth. It was also surprising to learn that the reason as to why these temperature differences occur is not, as yet, fully understood. My question is, however, if the corona did not exist, would the normal temperature found at the sun's surface be sufficient to have allowed life to evolve, or allow life to continue on Earth? It's pretty amazing, as well as unlikely, that we exist anyway without this strange, as it seems to me, situation existing on the star that sustains us. Thank you and for your time
7: and trouble. Well, Simon is correct that the sun's corona is much hotter than the photosphere, which is the surface of the sun, or actually the layer of the sun where the sun becomes opaque. The photosphere is about 5,500 Celsius, while the corona is millions of degrees Celsius. However, most of the energy received on the Earth is actually from the photosphere and not the corona. This is because the corona is much thinner than the photosphere. As I mentioned before, the photosphere is the part of the sun where the gas is so thick that it's opaque. The corona, however, is very thin and effectively transparent. Thick gases can more easily produce lots of thermal radiation than thin gases, so most of the energy from the sun does indeed come from the thicker part of the sun, uh, the photosphere, than from the thinner part of the sun, the corona. So, given this, uh, life on Earth would generally be unaffected if the sun had no corona at all and just had a photosphere. On the other hand, if the photosphere were to disappear, the Earth would get much cooler and uh, a lot of life would die. Our second question
6: comes from Paul Stevenson, who'd like to know, What is the mechanism that results in an elliptical galaxy when spiral galaxies merge? He's got another question, but I think that one's a joke, which is that if the Mark I can pick up a mobile phone signal on Mars, why can't his mobile phone company get me a decent signal in Hertfordshire?
7: So the first part to understanding this question is to understand why spiral galaxies are flat spinning disks. While we don't know the exact details of how spiral galaxies initially formed, we expect that they formed by gas falling inward into some sort of high-density region in the primordial universe. So gas clouds are what dynamicists would call collisional, which means that if you have two gas clouds pass near each other, they're likely to hit each other and stop moving in opposite directions. When you have a lot of small gas clouds falling into a protogalaxy, what happens is that a lot of the vertical motion in the gas clouds is lost, and the galaxy is left with a rotating disk, which has a direction of rotation that is connected to random motions of the primordial gas clouds that fall into it. Elliptical galaxies, on the other hand, are thought to be formed by uh, two spiral galaxies that have been around for billions of years. So a lot of the gas in the spiral galaxies has been converted into stars. When two spiral galaxies collide, disks are not necessarily in the same plane. So you have two disks of stars where the stars are rotating in two different sets of directions, and the galaxies themselves are probably moving around each other in a third plane, which is unaligned with the disks of either spiral galaxy. During the merger process, the two gas disks will typically smack into each other, and all the gas will fall into the center of the merger galaxy, and this will trigger huge amounts of star formation and may cause a lot of gas to be dumped onto a supermassive black hole or two black holes, possibly one from each spiral galaxy. When you dump gas onto a black hole, that uh, effectively activates it, so you could turn it into an active uh, galactic nucleus. Uh, you could actually have two active galactic nuclei uh, these would produce huge amounts of X-ray and radio emission and would actually be very bright objects. So the starburst and the AGN activity will blow most of the gas out of the center of the merged pair of galaxies. And so over time, with the merger remnant, uh, you won't have any more uh, gas present after this initial starburst. Or you may have a little bit left, but not a whole lot. Now that explains what happens to the gas in the galaxies, but like I said, it's, um, these spiral galaxies have potentially been around for billions of years, and they've already formed lots of stars. And the stars function a bit differently than gas in terms of collisions. Stars are what dynamicists would call collisionless, which means that if you have two stars and you sort of fire them towards each other, it's very unlikely that uh, they're going to get close enough that they even gravitationally interact with each other. They're more than likely to just continue flying by each other. And it's almost certain that they're not going to get close enough that the stellar atmospheres, the two stars, are going to smack into each other. So you have billions of stars in both the progenitor spiral galaxies, which are just going to pass by each other. Now, as I described earlier, uh, you have stars in the two spiral galaxies more than likely rotating in two different directions relative to each other. And then you have these two disks of stars kind of moving in third directions relative to the uh, rotation of the stars in the two progenitor galaxies. What this results in when you merge all of these groups of stars together is a huge scrambled mess. You just have stars going in various uh, directions relative to each other. And so uh, you effectively end up with a bunch of scrambled orbits, and you end up with something which is a disorganized ellipsoid of stars. Now, over hundreds of millions of years, these stars will uh, eventually settle down. You'll have some other things which will appear when these uh, galaxies merge, like you'll have some stars which are flung out in huge things called tidal tails, and then you may also have some shells of stars which appear, but over time, uh, those features will disappear, and what you'll be left with is kind of uh, this giant uh, ellipsoid of stars left over.
6: And our third and final question comes from Russ Jenkins, who notes that it gets hotter the nearer you dig to the center of the Earth, and asks, is the same true for Mars? Can Martian colonists keep warm and safe from radiation by digging down to the ground?
7: So, first of all, it took me a bit of work to find any information on this, but as best as I can tell, the interior of Mars is indeed hotter than the surface. Although the interior of Mars is not quite as hot as the interior of the Earth, uh, this is mainly because Mars is smaller. So, first of all, it's been able to cool more efficiently after uh, forming in the primordial solar system, and if its interior is heated by radioactive decay, like the Earth's interior, then there's generally less uh, stuff there to uh, produce heat, because it's less massive, and you also have less material for that heat to uh, escape through, so you'll end up with much cooler temperatures uh, inside the Martian interior, although, as best as I can tell, there's potentially still quite a bit of debate on this, you could still have uh, molten rock within the interior of Mars. So if Martian colonists were to dig deep enough, they would potentially uh, find that the temperature would increase as they uh, dig deeper but they would potentially be warmer in a base which is just a few meters underground for reasons that have nothing to do with the geology of the planet and for reasons that are very similar to why people on Earth could have warmer homes if they dig just a few meters underground. And that's because things that are underground are insulated by the rock on the surface, whereas things that are on the surface of planets are actually fairly well exposed and uninsulated. So during the daytime, things on the surface can be heated directly by the sun and can actually get much warmer. During nighttime, uh, there's no insulation on the surface for things on the surface, and so they'll radiate away a lot of this heat. This same energy influx and energy outflow does not affect things which are buried just a few mirrors underground, so they'll actually stay... Uh, at a more even temperature over time.
0: Thanks for that, Adam and George. Uh, and just to follow up there on the Ask an Astronomer that you just heard, um, we, we had a drive there recently for you to send us more questions for Ask an Astronomer because we weren't really getting any, and, uh, George has addressed most of them there, but we had, we had one further question, um, which though we didn't, uh, send it to George, we, what we did do was we, wrote it up on our notice board, sorry, on our whiteboard in the tea room. And the question was from Gavin Mellishib, um, who posts on our Facebook group sometimes, and he asked us, when is an astronomer not an astronomer? Uh, <laughs> so we put this up on the whiteboard in the tea room uh, here at JBCA, and we had a spirited response. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We got lots of
1: amusing responses, yes. didn't
0: we? We couldn't pick one. Lots of witty responses. Now, we're going to post... Um, we are going to post a picture of the whiteboard um, up on our page eventually, but I have it here and I'm going to read, we'll read some of them out to you. Some of them are quite witty. So when is an astronomer not an astronomer? So we have, let me see, when they are a misnomer, very clever wordplay there, uh, when they want to be an astrophysicist, uh, and I guess it's the jury's out on whether or not there's a difference between an astrophysicist and an astronomer. I think they would
1: argue, would you?
0: I'm not sure if there is, but I know when I tell
2: people I'm an astronomer, but I don't use telescopes, they tell me I'm not an astronomer. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, yeah, I have got that too. Yeah. Um, I think, though, that's that's um where do you draw the line. I've had mm-hmm. one person tell me I'm not an observational astronomer because... I don't observe with telescopes that are on mountains. Because when you're a radio astronomer, all the telescopes are on the ground where they belong. <laughs> this fellow said, no, 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 you're not a real astronomer. You know, you never have to go anywhere extreme. or the, To which I would say, well, okay, maybe you're only a real astronomer if you go out into space and do your astronomy from the Hubble telescope. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess... um I, I don't know. I wouldn't have said that was too much of a difference, really. At the no, exam. I don't think so. Hedantic, but... I quite um, liked the, the one that was um,
1: when is an astronomer not an astronomer to avoid the conversation about star signs. Oh, the star yeah. signs. You know,
0: I've actually started just learning some of the horoscopes, so that when people ask me, oh, what's my horoscope? My birthday's in June. I just tell them some stuff to give them what they want and shut them up. <laughs> you know, I'm at the hairdresser and I'm like, I don't want to get into this. So I'm just like, well, you're going to have a really good month, and you're going to have an unexpected windfall, and you'll probably get some happy news, and they're happy out with that. And they
2: have your hair in their hands. Exactly. Right? So you can't, yeah, you
0: yeah, can't yeah, annoy exactly. them. That's it. That's it. <laughs> uh, let me see. What else do we have here? When is an astronomer not an astronomer? When they're at home with the family, which I think is really sweet. That's sweet. Yeah, that's that's, that's uh, that would have been the closest to what I would have said as well. It's like I go home and. You know, they don't care that... Well, they do care, but um, they don't... It doesn't occur to them, you know, that I'm looking out at these things far away in space. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my mum, she just <laughs> wants me to lay the table and yeah <laughs> set the stove on. She... Him, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's some um, more important things at hand. Uh Let me see. Do you want to read some out, Monique?
2: There are some more controversial ones, <laughs> such as when they are a planetary scientist.
0: <laughs> which is technically true. Um... Because you're not looking at stars, then you're looking at planets.
1: Well, I suppose there's a there's a broad overlap, isn't there? There is, yeah.
0: there is. I mean, I guess the word comes from a time where they didn't really know if it, if it the was. Difference. A, yeah, if it was a different
1: solar system, it would be astronomy. Ah, yes. there but if we it's go. Yeah, ours, yeah. it's not exactly. Maybe.
0: And I quite like the fact that.
2: There's an, a small debate started on the whiteboard as to whether or not some people were adequately answering the question.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> someone, has, someone, <laughs> someone has heavily underlined, because we, we said insert a witty pun here, and someone has heavily underlined the word witty. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we'll put a picture up on Facebook uh, at some stage of all of those responses. You can see them for yourself. Uh, and feel free to contribute any more. Mm-hmm. Now on to the feedback. We've
1: had loads of feedback this month. Thanks so much. Um, we've got loads of likes and shares and um, lots of emails and things. So let's start with the post.
0: Okay, so we had three postcards this month. It was a really exciting month for post. Uh, and we love post. We love it so much. Send us your post um, at every available opportunity because we love to get it. Uh, so I have a postcard here from La Palma. um uh, showing lovely pictures of the telescopes there and on the back of it is written, Dear Jodcast, As regular listeners, we have noticed that you often sound a little upset that you rarely get real post, so thought that we ought to do something about this. We are currently in La Palma enjoying our honeymoon and today we visited the observatories. Last night was spent marvelling in the clear skies and looking at delights such as Saturn and the Perseus double cluster. Anyway, we hope you are all well and we look forward to the October edition. Jordan, Colin and Becky from Rugby in the UK uh, that's lovely good luck lads I hope you're enjoying your honeymoon that's really really that's nice very thank sweet. you so much yeah. it, it is very sweet
1: um, I've got one here we just got a lovely picture of a time-lapse photo of some stars in a night sky above Kielder Observatory and it says hi Jodcasters just watch the lunar eclipse from Kielder Observatory, a very clear sky, very clear uh, explanations from the staff and volunteers there. Since you famously love to get real mail <laughs> and this occasion <laughs> won't be repeated <laughs> until 2033, I could not not send you a postcard now, could I? I? love this show and never miss it, especially Ask an Astronomer. Thanks and best wishes, Lawrence Hill. Jod on. Thanks for that, Lawrence. That's great. Yeah, thank you.
2: And our final postcard this month comes from the South Island in New Zealand, which is apparently called The Mainland by everyone who lives there. <laughs> um, it's got a lovely picture on it of some mountains and also the tail of a whale. Diving
0: into the mountains. <laughs> it's, um, it's How a, bizarre. It's a very diverse postcard. It's lovely. it's lovely. Yeah. It's making me want to go to New Zealand. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it looks lovely.
2: Um, and it says, greetings from New Zealand. I've really appreciated Jodcasts and downloaded everyone. Keep it up from Lindsay. That's great. Thank great, you. thanks for that, Lindsay. Yeah. It's thanks really thanks appreciated. Everyone. Uh, we love post. Yep, we have a whole wall of post around yes, exactly. our recording we're, room. And
0: we're awesome. going to stick all of these up on it presently. Mm-hmm.
2: So we've also had um, an email this month um, from Mark Ratcliffe. Um, he said, both versions of The Night Sky were brilliantly read. However, what a breath of the fresh air Haritina was. Relating with personal anecdotes, what she saw and how she felt, I could rave on for hours about how she made me feel. Please don't ever stop any of you, and thank you so much for what you do.
0: Oh, that's really nice. That's mm-hmm. lovely. Thank yeah, you, Mark. really appreciate it. Um, on Facebook, we've had Chris Walker send us some really beautiful images of the lunar eclipse that happened in September. Those were really lovely. Thank you so much, Chris. And um, we're going to put those up in our show notes for you all to see.
1: And so. we've had... Uh comment from Matthew Wilday due to due in part to listening to the Jodcast and loving the content I'm now scratching my head reading a uni book teaching me how to find the HCFs and LCMs of LG, algebraic equations
2: um, and we also heard from Miles Hendricks who commented the Jodcast is one of the nine things worth doing on the internet we love you peeps Aww. that is high praise it's good feedback this month mm-hmm. what yeah. are the
0: other things what are the other? Yeah, reasons? I'd like to hear the other yes, eight.
2: So yeah.
1: Um, if you could let us know next week. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't keep us waiting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and thank you for all the likes and shares and all the nice messages. Uh, thanks for all the follows and retweets on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
0: On Twitter at twitter.com slash
2: jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website.
1: Thanks to James McKee and Tony Rushton for the interviews. The editors were James Bamber, Charlie Walker and Benjamin Shaw. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, John. John.